now we're going to go into views action path today part 23 uh, I noticed that we started this series in February of this year so it's been over five months and this is um, one of the longer series and we're approaching the end uh, either this week or next week uh, it'll end and last week uh, we went very deep into translations from the German scholar Klaus Dieter Mates in a very interesting book uh, called um, A Fine Blend of Mahamudra and Madhyamaka. Mahamudra meaning great seal or a term for the luminous uh, awakened condition or a luminous awakening. It's not even a condition, it's reality, awareness of reality. Um, beyond delusion, beyond ignorance, beyond believing in conception. Madhyamaka means middle path, teachings of Nagarjuna, and so Buddhist logic and philosophy. Uh, reading from Maitripa, a Buddhist adept uh, in the 11th century, uh, particularly focused on Amanasikara, which can be translated as non-conceptual realization, or withdrawing one's attention. It's ah, manasikara, not manasikara. Manasikara as um, attentive, um, attentive uh, uh, core attentiveness, or essential attentiveness. Ah, being not, it really doesn't mean not attentiveness. It's um, non-subjectivist, non-dual attention. Um, non-reified attention, meaning attention and attentiveness without conceptualizing it as now I'm being attentive. And that's really just the heart of uh, sati or mindfulness. So it's not even new, but it's a new philosophical formulation. And <clears throat> um, from the introduction, which we also went over before, these teachings from Maitripa, uh, collection of 26 texts on non-conceptual realization. Realization itself is naturally non-conceptual. Blending the essence of tantric Mahamudra teachings and a form of Madhyamaka philosophy called non-abiding, apratishtana. Non-abiding is also the way of mindfulness. <laughs> Not really different. It's non-abiding attentiveness, which aims at radically transcending any conceptual assessment of true reality um, in many ways, it's it's just a focus on the awakened condition or awakened reality as much as concept can allow. <laughs> and <clears throat> uh, Mates, the scholar, wrote that in the introduction, this goal is achieved by, quote, withdrawing one's attention, Amanasikara, which is really um, non-conceptual attentiveness, withdrawing attention from anything that involves duality of perceived and perceiver, result is luminous self-empowerment, or luminosity. And the heart of that was a um, uh, phrase that he wrote in an article for Tantric Studies in 2008, which was the comment, quote, For Maitripa and his circle, Amanasikara not only means to refrain from mental engagement of dualistic thought, but also to directly realize the luminous nature of mind, which is freedom from superimposition and denial. So freedom from affirmation and negation, freedom from believing in concept, as well as rejecting. 
and um, this, you know, it's basically using this understanding of the awakened state as the basis of practice. And that's why Tibetan Buddhism calls itself the fast path, or the fastest of the yanas, the three vehicles of Buddhism, right? Kinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. They're philosophically <laughs> conceiving and presenting in a conceptual form the awakened condition, the awakened reality, because it's not even a condition, the, the nature of awakening being naturally refraining from mental engagement of dualistic thought which is basically grasping an aversion, whether that's grasping at thought or turning away from thought, saying it is or it isn't. Uh, there is a self, there is no self. They're both considered uh, avidya, ignorance, and not of the nature of um, awakened being. Uh, using their understanding of awakened being as the way of practice. And, as I said, uh, I've seen a lot of Western students of Vajrayana get really tangled up in thinking about um, enlightenment, thinking about non-conceptuality, and believing that their thinking is getting them closer when they're actually really just um, doing a whole lot of thinking. Um, but to understand freedom from superimposition and denial, freedom from... Um, affirming it is and denying it isn't or eternalism and nihilism uh, is the you know is associated with living in true nature or awakening or Mahamudra but you really just can't get there exactly by thinking and where we go today is um, about 900 years into the future uh, from uh, uh, from Maitripa at Vajra in the 11th century as one of the founders of Kagyu, Karma Kagyu, the Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, to Ajahn Sao. And I'm not sure if you can work with that link because it has some strange per, uh, percentage marks on it. <laughs> um, let me send you um, a uh, English type link there that hopefully works also. Just a second. Okay. That is um, who has the last word here. <laughs> Ajahn Sao, Kantasila Mahatera. Mahatera means great Tera, means great elder. Theravada is the way of the elders. Mahatera means great elder. Pra is sort of like lord or sir, like uh, Bhante. Ajahn means teacher, like Ajahn Cha. Um, Sao Kantashilo was his name. Born 1861, died 1941, right? So the turn of the century, 80 years old. A monk in the Thai forest tradition of Theravada Buddhism, right? A Mahatera. A member of the Dhammayutika Nikaya, meaning the community of those in Thailand who were associated with a reformulation of Buddhism, because things had already gotten kind of far from the original uh, 2,400 years down the line from Gautama's death. Uh, one, of his best, one of his most well-known students was Ajahn Mun. Ajahn Mun was a very heavy hitter. And another very heavy hitter who was also a student was Ajahn Lee Damadaro, 
you can see down the page on the right side the Dhammayutika Nikaya, um, the basket or the community of those following this reformulated understanding of Theravada Buddhism. Um, you know, these guys have looked into Tibetan Buddhism too. <laughs> they know about the value of philosophic speculation, uh, and they felt it's time to get back to the original forest tradition that Gautama was teaching the monks 2,500 years ago. <clears throat> and uh, Ajahn Sao, as the head uh, or the, the beginning, um, in some ways the founder, or uh, one of the founders, could be said, of the Thai forest tradition, and one of the leading lights of the Dhammayutika Nikaya. Nikaya is like um, uh, Samyutta Nikaya, um, one of the basket, the um, compendiums of the original Pali teachings, or called Nikayas. So the Dharma Yutia, Dhamma is Dharma, Yutia, Yutika, and Nikaya was this reformulation of early Buddhism uh, community and movement in Thailand uh, at the end of the 19th century, and end of the 19th century. And so a great teacher can be known by the greatness of his, her students, uh, one, way, one way, not all great teachers have great students, uh, some have no successor, but he had a few seriously awakened students, uh, Ajahn Mun, Ajahn uh, Lee, Tamadaro, and then down the line is uh, Ajahn Chah and uh, Tanisaro Biko, And so this is the head of that line, the Thai forest tradition, uh, 900 years after uh, Maitripa, who was the head, who the, one of the core founding teachers, um, adepts of uh, Tibetan Vajrayana Karmakagyu or Kagyu lineage. So, um, I want to read from um, an Access to Insight page uh, which was actually quoted directly uh, on the Wikipedia page. If you look in the third paragraph, it says Ajahn Sao's teaching, transcribed from a talk by Pra Ajahn Puttanyo, which was, I guess, a student of his. That is what I'm going to read in a moment uh, from the Access to Insight page, translated by... Um, it was transcribed by John Puttanyo and then translated from the Thai by Tanisaro. But before that, I just want to briefly look at the Thai forest tradition and uh, bear in mind that the Tibetans, you know, look down on these guys. And I think that's uh, to their discredit uh, because they really... <laughs> don't understand what's going on in the forest, it seems. Um, the Thai forest tradition uh, is the Kamatana forest tradition. Kamatana is karma. Tana. Kama is karma, right, in Pali. Karma, Sanskrit. means workplace. Um, Kamatana, the forest, is the workplace. The forest monastery is the place of work. The work of transformation. Uh, a lineage of Theravada Buddhist monasticism uh, distinguished from other Buddhist traditions by doctrinal emphasis on the notion that mind precedes the world 
its description of the Buddhist path as a training regimen for mind and its objective to reach proficiency or ability in a diverse range of both meditative techniques, meaning different practices, um, and that's the word kamatana also, meaning uh, work, uh, meditative work, and aspects of conduct that will eradicate defilements, right? Kleshas, we talked about that, and ashravas, the distorted mental flow, and the unhelpful tendencies of mind associated with grasping, aversion, and ignorance, unwholesome aspects of mind in order to attain awakening. And so this is now the second paragraph on the page, Thai Forest Tradition. Uh, the tradition began circa 1900 with Ajahn Mun, uh, Buridato, which was the student of Ajahn Sao, Kantashilo, both of these Damayut monks from Lao-speaking region of northeast Thailand known as Isan, which is nearby Laos. Um, they began wandering the Thai countryside out of their desire to, to practice monasticism according to the normative standards of classical Buddhism, uh, which Ajahn Mun termed the customs of the noble ones. So these guys, it's a reformist movement that moved away from what they felt was overemphasis on study and ritual back to the forest uh, tradition, um, the forest working um, akin or in resonance with Gautama's teaching to the monks in the forest of northeast India 2,500 years ago. Uh, during this time, the Wikipedia goes on, when folk religion was observed predominantly among Theravada village monastic factions in the Siamese region in Thailand. And so folk religion had taken over, meaning um, superstition and ritualism. Uh, like in Tibet, <laughs> intellectualism seemed to have taken over, and now all sorts of things have taken over. Because of this, or politics, <laughs> because of this, orthopraxy, meaning orthodox practice, with regard to the early extant, earliest extant Buddhist texts, is emphasized in the tradition, right, back to the original text, and the tradition has a reputation for scrupulous observance of the Buddhist monastic code, which is the Vinaya. And that these are the guys, generally, I would think, who don't touch money and um, don't have bank accounts. And they just basically go to the forest and um, work on mind to awakening and follow the rules closely. Um, and that's the end of that. Um, <laughs> seems quite noble and um, uh, profoundly honorable to me. Uh, it there's some description of it being possibly anti-textual, like Zen, right? Zen in Japan comes from Chan in China, comes from the word Dhyana, D-H-Y-A-N-A in Sanskrit, which means meditation or practice. So Chan and Zen uh, also represent a return to the original emphasis on practice. And uh, the diminished emphasis or focus on uh, studying text. And uh, the last paragraph I want to read from is coupled down there saying the purpose of practice in the tradition, which is in accord with the original teaching, is to the ultimate end of experiencing the deathless. An absolute, unconditioned, and now Wikipedia is trying to explain it, explain nirvana. Absolute, unconditioned, dimension of the mind, it's not a dimension of the mind, it's uh, absolute, unconditioned awareness, free of inconstancy, suffering, or sense of self, right? Free of the three marks, anicca, dukkha, anatta. 
According to the tradition's exposition, awareness of the deathless is boundless and unconditioned and cannot be conceptualized, right? Mahamudra. Um, it's inconceivable. <laughs> Mahamudra is inconceivable. The awakened yogi is inconceivable. Um, and it's a matter of how much concept will be used as practice to realize the transconceivable, inconceivable. So it must be arrived at through the aforementioned, aforementioned mental training, which includes deep states of meditative concentration, the jhanas, and forest teachers directly challenge the notion of dry insight. What is dry insight? Well, from another page, it's called Sudha Vipassana, and um, I'll send a link on that. See, I'm prepared. Dry insight, somebody wrote, or Sudha, Shuddha Vipassana is the direct, quote, direct way, right? So the people now <laughs> want an easier way, so they talk about a direct way to inside Nibbana without jhana, without jhana meditation practice. So without spending time um, in jhana, which means what? Not meditation? Maybe Gautama was certainly saying that the higher jhanas, the formless jhanas, are not essential to insight. But if a person doesn't have any deep meditative practice, training, experience, uh, without samadhi, I don't know if you can get to prajna, <laughs> right? Srila Samadhi Prajna. But there is this tradition, and um, in the West you see it, of course, <laughs> as usual, uh, from Mahasi Sayadaw uh, and Goenka. These are Burmese teachers who had strong have continuing strong influence in the Vipassana tradition today, um, and their view, which some people disagree with, which I think is uh, a little bit, meaning the view is a little questionable. This book, you'll see the same page, The Progress of Insight by Mahasi Sayadaw, 1994, quote, this approach, so everybody's got their new thing, huh? This approach to the ultimate goal of Buddhist meditation is called, quote, bare insight, or dry insight, because insight into the three characteristics of existence, right, the three marks, impermanence, insubstantiality, and um, stress, is made use of exclusively here, insight made use of exclusively, dispensing with the prior development of full concentrative absorption or jhana. And um, so now you've got <laughs> um, the Noble Eightfold Path without jhana, just like <laughs> you have some Tibetan Buddhists who... Uh, you know, are seeking awakening, um, drinking and sexing freely. Um, these these are pretty heavy Buddhist uh, Burmese teachers, Goenka, Ubakin, Mahasasayada, and a lot of people have gotten a lot of benefit from it. But I'm not really sure how much one can work with, uh, how much insight can come without the capacity of the mind for stability, which is called <laughs> concentration, which is associated with samadhi and meditative training. Even if one doesn't use the higher jhanas, um, I'm not sure that insight can come without. But you see, it's very similar to the Tibetan Vajrayana Karmakagyu line with uh, the Mahasiddha, you know, Mahamudra teaching, talking about um, the fast path. <laughs> the fast path, which for them seems to be um, what? <laughs> uh, sexual congress with the uh, karma mudra or visualized 
tantric sexual practice with the yana mudra or reflection on their view of uh, what the fine blend of mahamudra and madhyamaka called the manasikara without samadhi without meditation without training well they do a lot of meditation so it gets a little bit you know funny here when new um, new approaches come in and there's some view that the old way can be dispensed with but the forest tradition and that's where you know related to what I uh, sort of touched a bit when I was in Thailand for a few months in 83 <clears throat> I went to Ajahn Chah's temple but they weren't taking new people or they didn't take me which was fine and I went to the south and lived in um, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's place um, Wat Sun Mok in Chaya, Suratani, <clears throat> when it was like uh, 90 degrees in, in January and February. And I think that's also related to the forest tradition, though I'm not sure of his lineage, Ajahn Buddhadasa. But this directly challenging the notion of dry insight <clears throat> is basically saying you've got to make effort in meditation. And it goes on, the tradition further asserts that the training which leads to the deathless is not undertaken simply through contentment <clears throat> or letting go, but the deathless must be reached by, quote, exertion and striving, sometimes described as a battle or struggle, to cut or clear the path through the tangle of defilements that bind the mind to the conditioned world in order to set awareness free. And um, I absolutely agree with that. And um, complete and perfect enlightenment is a very big deal. And I, it seems to me that some of the more new new formulated approaches like dry insight or Mahamudra where you can you're either what focusing on tantric deity visualizations or um, simply seeking to let go or philosophically contemplate or seek to resonate with the inconceivable uh, luminous condition, freedom from, you know, superimposition and denial to try to kind of work the mind to that somehow. <clears throat> um, these new approaches that drop the old, uh, I think they have some real problem. And um, they really do want something easier or faster, it seems like to me. Meanwhile, <clears throat> these guys <laughs> um, make huge effort. And when you really do that, you'll see how deep the distortions in mind are. When you make real hard practice, like you sit six hours a day, you'll see how crazy the mind really is and um, what the piece of work of achieving complete and perfect enlightenment is, is to get through unre you know, unfathomable depths of distortion in mind, everybody's mind, because it's basically compressing billions of years of evolution into several lifetimes. <clears throat> and it's not just, um, you know, having a quiet mind. Not at all. It's all sorts of <clears throat> um, precognitive, um, preconceptual, mistaken identifications, like I am this body and time and space is real, uh, spatiality, location out, location, uh, subjective location is real. <laughs> We're talking about breaking through to infinity. Okay? This is a really big deal. And when I've done really hard practice, which is nothing like what these guys have done, 
uh, <clears throat> not only have I seen how crazy the deep mind is, but how much preconceptual uh, sub mental substrate substratic, you know, very deep levels of mind distortions have to be released, which is it's it's way beyond thinking, way beyond that which even can be thought. But certain kinds of dis based on ignorance. Uh, fashionings of ahamkara and restlessness, you know, ninth, eighth, ninth fetter stuff. Very subtle, very preconceptual. I mean, you can't, you can't. We're way beyond psychological stuff like my patterns that I can identify, the concept, my thoughts and feelings that I can identify with other concept. It's way beyond that, and that's where these guys are going. And I don't think people understand that. <clears throat> and that's why they think there can be a more direct way or a fast way or a shortcut or something to what? Dispense with jhana, dispense with um, the rules, <laughs> the vinaya. <laughs> so these guys basically are traditionalists in the extreme and exertion and striving. And um, you, you can really hurt yourself if you go into that uh, unless you're 100% sure you want it. But these guys, as far as I can tell, were absolutely 100% committed to complete transformation. And that goes through levels of mind that are associated with psychosis, actually. Um, the very, very extremely subtle distortions of mind that uh, whose dissolution, the distortion leavings when they come up, absolutely triggers quasi-psychotic states. This depersonalization, um, uh, all sorts of things. De de uh, <clears throat> disidentifications of all sort have to be cut away. And as that stuff comes up and out um, through the light of sati or mindfulness, yin jhana, uh, one can feel one's going crazy, and some people do because they weren't ready for it. Uh, but it's really um, a, a very deep piece of work, and I really get, a sen I really get it why these guys um, took it very slow, and you really can't achieve complete and perfect enlightenment unless that's all you want, <clears throat> and you're willing to give everything up for that. And some Tibetan uh, yogis did, of course. Milarepa and... Um, uh, Tilopa, <laughs> for sure, and um, Maitripa, I, I imagine, did too. <clears throat> so even though those guys are talking about something that seems faster or more direct, um, they were monks for decades and decades and did nothing other than practice and study, even when they're talking about a fast path or something more direct in the old way. So that's a bit of introduction on the Thai forest tradition. And <clears throat> if you're interested, you can look further on Kamatana. Uh, the Wikipedia page is here. Let me send the link briefly. Just a second. Just to read the first paragraph or so, in Buddhism, kamatana is a Pali word, 
in Sanskrit, karma, right? Karma shtana, which literally means place of work. The original meaning was someone's occupation, like farming, has several distinct but related usage, all having to do with Buddhist meditation and, again, the um, Thai forest tradition. Most basic meaning is a word for meditation, just like dhyana or tan or zen. Burma, senior meditation practitioner, so there is that excuse me, tradition in Burma too. Kamatana Acharya, um, where Kamatana was uh, written as uh, meditation. Uh, meditation masters, Buddha Gosha, one of the main um, writers <coughs> of Abhidhamma, commentary on Buddha's teaching a few hundred years after Gautama died, uses a term, so it goes way back to that, Kamatana to refer to each of the 40 meditation objects listed in Vishuddhimagga from the Pali Canon. And so the Thai forest tradition takes us back to Abhidhamma, Buddha Gosha, Vishuddhi Maga, and I did a little talk on that where Vishuddhi uh, Maga, Maga meaning path, like Sotapanna, Maga Pala, Maga path, Pala fruit, Vishuddhi path. Vishuddhi, uh, commonly translated as purification, is the same word for fifth chakra, fifth ray, Vishuddhi. And it's really fifth ray path, <laughs> the blue path. But that's very esoteric. And so the Thai forest tradition, Ajahn Sao, Ajahn Mun, Ajahn Li, Ajahn Ta, um, Ajahn um, Tanisaro, uh, were um, strict constructionists and go back to the earliest commentaries on the earliest teachings from the Pali. That's why access to insight, I think, is such a fine sight. They um, are orthodox um, in their view and practice, and I think that's great. And um, uh, what I want to end the final um, reading uh, for this entire series, Views Action Path, uh, will be from uh, Ajahn Sao. He wrote nothing. <laughs> he um, didn't write anything. Uh, it was transcribed just like Nityananda wrote nothing. Gautama wrote nothing. It's just that that's generally the way the greatest teachers are. They're just speaking and let somebody else write it if they want. Uh, their work is in the moment speaking to those who are ready and sincerely seeking um, guidance for their own con continued and completed transformation. And so the um, page I want to send, or I will send now, Access to Insight, uh, Ajahn Sao's teaching, Reminiscence of Ajahn Pra Ajahn Sao Kantashilo, from Pra Ajahn Puttanyo, his student I guess, translated by Tanasaro Bhikkhu, and um, this will take us from <laughs> the extended examination of Michaditi, Gandhava, and the Suttapana path from wrong views and the um, the intermediate stage after death uh, which is where <laughs> the, the particularly uh, hell realm and hungry ghost condition which is where most of them those with wrong views go 
because most of those with wrong view or materialist nihilists um, also happen to be amoralists or immoral or um, significantly harming self and other because they feel there's no why not, right? With one life to live, right? So they think then um, <laughs> then after death they have a big surprise. So the immoral materialist um, has a big surprise waiting for him. The non, the, the virtuous or kindly or love wisdom and um, heartful materialist or nihilist, if there is any, they're different because they've done good. <laughs> they've um, lived in kindness, if indeed they're committed to that, even if they have the what Buddhists would call a wrong view of materialism. Uh, but we're far away from that condition, and a John Sow takes us full circle uh, from um, the writings of PureDhamma.net, Lal Aryaratna, Pinaduwage, the Sri Lankan um, yogi, monk, student, uh, Satapani, perhaps, um, who explained from the Sri Lankan, his Sri Lankan teacher's perspective, uh, core Pali Buddhist language, early Theravadan Buddhist teaching, wrong views to right view, wrong action to right action, working through the ashravas and the kleshas, onto the Suttapana Maga, to the Suttapana Pala, path to the fruit, uh, what that's all about, uh, moving 1500 years in the future to uh, 11th century Maitripa, and um, uh, the teachings of Mahamudra, Manashikara, which are, I think, wonderful, um, but these guys lived it. <laughs> they, they were ascetics, you know. These guys were renunciates. They were not screwing around and playing around and having game, having parties. They were living an ascetic life. Uh, and all they did was basically formulate <laughs> reality conceptually and then live it by practice. Uh, and that's the root of the Karmakagyu in Tibetan, Tibetan Vajrayana. And then we pull up uh, 900 years to um, a John Sao and the reformulation of Thai Buddhism, particularly uh, into the um, Kamatana forest tradition. And the head of the mountain, the top of the, the summit of the mountain is right around a John Sao. So that last link I sent, I'll read it. We'll see how far we go. And this is again <coughs> transcription from a talk. So this is presumably him talking at John Sao directly. Um, actually, no. It's um, transcribed from a talk. Actually, the talk was from a John Puttanio, his student or someone in the lineage uh, remembering a John Sao. Okay. So this is from Ajahn uh, Tanio or put he writes or he spoke in our day and age the practice of going into the forest to meditate and follow the ascetic Dutanga which is ascetic practices began with Pra Ajahn Sao Kantashila teacher Pra Ajahn Mun by extension Pra Ajahn Singh and Pra Ajahn Li that's Damadaro Li Damadaro great beautiful man Prajan Sao was inclined to be not a preacher or a speaker, but a doer. When he taught his students, he said very little. 
and those who study directly under him are now elders who speak very little, who rarely preach, having picked up the habit from their teacher. Thus, as Prajan Sao was not a preacher, I would like to tell you a little of the way in which he taught meditation. How did Prajan Sao teach? If it so happened that someone came to him, saying, Ajahn, sir, I want to practice meditation. How should I go about it? He would answer, meditate on the word Buddha, which is like um, uh, the first meditative practice, to meditate on, on that again and again. If the person asked, what does Buddha mean? Ajahn Sao would answer, don't ask. What will happen after I've meditated on Buddha? Asks, says the student. Ajahn Sao says, don't ask. Your only duty is to simply repeat the word Buddha over and over in your mind. And that's how he taught. No long, drawn-out explanations. Now, if the student was sincere in putting the Ajahn's instructions into practice and was persistent in practicing the repetition, if his mind then became calm and bright from entering into concentration, right, Ajahna, he would come and ask Ajahn how, when meditating on Buddha, my mind, my state of mind becomes such and such. What should I do now? If it was right, Ajahn Sao would say, keep on meditating. <laughs> if not, he would say, you have to do such and such. What you're doing isn't right. For example, once when I was his attendant novice, a senior monk of the Mahanikaya, Mahanikaya sect came and placed himself under the direction as a beginning student in meditation. Right? So a senior monk <laughs> of, another, of that sect or another sect puts himself as a as an young student. Right? So that's how senior or how high up Ajahn Sao is. Placed himself under his direction as a beginning student meditation. Ajahn Sao taught him to meditate on Buddha. Now, when the monk had settled down on Buddha, his mind became calm. And once it was calm, bright. And then he stopped repeating Buddha. At this point, his mind was simply blank. Afterwards, he sent his attention out, following the brightness and a number of visions began to arise. Spirits of the dead, hungry ghosts, divine beings, people, animals, mountains, forests. Sometimes it seemed as if he, or rather his mind, left his body and went wandering through the forest and wilderness, seeing the various things mentioned above. Afterwards, he went and told Ajahn Sao, when I meditated down to the point where the mind became calm and bright, it then went out, following the bright light. Visions of ghosts, divine beings, people, and animals appear. Sometimes it seemed as if I went out, as if I went out following the visions. This is associated with the fifth and the sixth uh, jhanas, uh, perception of infinity of space and infinity of consciousness, akin to, to unity. As soon as a jhana sao heard this, he said, "This isn't right. For the mind to go knowing and seeing outside isn't right. You have to make it know inside." knowing inside, not all that stuff outside. The monk then asked, how should I go about making it know inside? Inside. Prajan Sao answered, when the mind is in a bright state like that, when it has forgotten or abandoned its repetition of Buddha, and is simply sitting sitting empty and still, look for the breath. Right? Anapanasati. If the sensation of the breath appears in your awareness, if focus on the breath as your object and then simply keep track of it following it inward until the mind becomes even calmer and brighter so <laughs> magic powers of uh, divine eye and ear 
are completely not the practice and not the way. And so the monk followed the Ajahn's instructions until finally the mind settled down in threshold concentration, also called access concentration, upachara samadhi, following which the breath became more and more refined, ultimately to the point where it disappeared. It doesn't mean he stopped breathing, it just means it became too subtle. His sensation of having a body also disappeared, leaving just the state in which the mind was sitting absolutely still, a state of awareness itself standing out clear, with no sense of going forward or back, no sense of where the mind was, because at that moment there was just the mind, all on its own. At this point, the monk came, the monk came again to ask, After my mind has become calm and bright, and I fix my attention on the breath and follow the breath inward, until it reaches a state of being absolutely still and quiet, or quiet and still, so still that nothing is left, the breath doesn't appear, the sense of having a body vanishes, only the mind stands out, brilliant and still. When it's like this, is it right or wrong? <laughs> so, John Sound knows all of this. He's gone all the way <laughs> through all this. He says, whether it's right or wrong, the Ajahn answered, take that as your standard. Make an effort to be able to do this as often as possible. And only when you're skilled at it should you come and see me again. <laughs> okay? This is a big piece of work. So the monk followed the Ajahn's instructions and later was able to make his mind still to the point that there was no sense of having a body and the breath disappeared more and more often. He became more and more skilled and his mind became more and more firm. Eventually, after he had been making his mind still very frequently, because as a rule, there's the principle that virtue develops concentration, concentration develops discernment, Discern discernment develops the mind. Right? So, shila develops samadhi, samadhi develops discernment, um, which is related to prajna, and prajna develops the mind, uh, related to particularly consciousness. When his concentration became powerful and strong, it gave rise to abhinya, uh, heightened knowledge and true insight. Knowledge of what? Knowledge of the true nature of the mind, that is, knowing the states of the mind as they occur in the present, or so he said. Meaning, so the monk said, this is what happened to his mind as he continued his practice from virtue, shila, <laughs> through samadhi, concentration, through discernment, uh, prajna, or um, wisdom and knowing, um, with insight, as the developing consciousness and the entirety of, of mind function, uh, gave rise to abhinya, uh, heightened knowledge and true insight, knowledge of the true nature of mind, knowing the states of mind as they occur in the present. That seems simple, right? But it's knowing <laughs> their essence beyond thought. After he had left this level of concentration and came to see a John Sao, he was told, this level of concentration is fixed penetration, apana samadhi. Apana is related to anapana, actually. This level of concentration is actually just fixed penetration, apana samadhi. You can rest assured that in this level of concentration there is no insight or knowledge of anything at all. There is only the brightness and the stillness. If the mind is forever in that state, it'll be stuck simply on that level of stillness. So once you've made the mind still like this, watch for the interval where it begins to stir out of its concentration. As soon as the mind has a sense that it's beginning to take up an object, no matter what object may appear first, focus on the act of taking up an object. 
That's what you should examine. The monk followed the Ajahn's instructions, and afterwards he was able to make fair progress in the level of his mind. And that's not even complete enlightenment. <laughs> All right? That's, that's a fast path. <laughs> that's the direct talking between a senior advanced student and a great master who's finished the path. It looks like that. And in the old days, <laughs> if you can't do what he's done, you don't have time with the teacher. You, the teacher doesn't want to spend time extensively with people who can't do this because he can teach this. He can teach, you know, from one to a hundred. Um, he doesn't spend a lot of time with people who haven't gotten beyond ten. So, <laughs> that's the way it really is. And um, this, uh, you know, this, this state of um, stillness and brightness is not complete and perfect awakening. It's not true insight. It's not the end of the path. It's not... It's, it's not the insight that leads to final release. It's fixed penetration. It's akin to six density. <laughs> that ain't enlightenment. That's just six density. It's akin to the formless realm. It's akin, you know, one of the, uh, to the formless jhanas, particularly um, uh, perhaps uh, five, six, seven, uh, perception of or awareness of infinity of space, infinity of consciousness, those are the levels where the mind is going out and seeing all sorts of multidimensional things. Um, experience of non-duality. And you know, <laughs> in our degraded, degenerate culture of the New Age, uh, people who come back and say, I saw this and I saw that and I did this and I did that, are revered as the great teachers, right? Oh, wow, you're a master's great meditator. But actually, these guys are not... That, that's not even near real insight. That's just... Uh, supernatural powers associated with uh, non-duality but it's not associated with uh, final awakening insight and final release from all bondage and, and uh, distortion and so even abhinya heightened knowledge and true insight and that's a very important thing these sort of signs of awakening um, are just fixed penetration <laughs> they're just um consequences of being in higher formless jhanas and he said there's no insight or knowledge of anything at all <laughs> there's only brightness and stillness it'll be stuck there and you'll be you know what reborn in sixth density or something like that and the teaching here is to watch for the interval where the mind moves out of such uh, motion apparent motionless motionlessness stillness bright stillness that's not the end and to get to this point, <laughs> you know, takes a, a whole lot of work. And um, if one is dealing with relationship issues, <laughs> money issues, health issues, personal issues, um, one is nowhere near it, generally. <laughs> and the people we, dealing with all these personal issues, um, are nowhere near the, the, the skill that can get to these higher jhanas on demand. These guys can get to higher jhanas on demand. They sit down and they go into the 5th, 6th, 7th jhana. And that's exactly what's going on here. And so, and then the follow-up <laughs> is uh, the monk followed the Ajahn's instructions and afterwards he was able to make fair progress in the level of his mind. N not necessarily even achieve enlightenment. So that's what we're talking about. 
There's no fast path to this. There is no easy way. You can say, you know, it's a slow path, it's a fast path, it's direct. Uh, Buddha Dhamma is the direct way. And the people who think that they can do it faster, um, I think they're fooling themselves because you can't get to these levels of clarity uh, where you can go to the higher jhanas, the formless jhanas, where insight happens on demand. You can't get to that without um, impeccable virtue or completely complete blamelessness, where you have no regret <laughs> about stuff, nor you have, nor do we have any desires anymore, really, for worldly uh, fulfillment or experience. And um, the person is profoundly skilled in samadhi that they can just sit down and get there. And then they still have more work to do. And here, John Sao is saying that, you know, watch as the mind moves out of the stillness, uh, watch what's happening. And what you'll see is, um, you know, restlessness and subjective subjectivity arising, all right? Um, the, the subtle roots of ahamkara or the, the fashioning of um, conceptual identity and um, tana and upadana, right? The basic thirst or craving or clinging and grasping. Um, all that will be seen in its true nature. As, you know, what? As Mahamudra, as emptiness? Okay, whatever. Um, but if you can't get there, you won't know, really, no matter what you, uh, how much you're talking to yourself and congratulating yourself on being on some kind of faster path, so this is what it really looks like, as far as I can tell. <laughs> and um, there is no fast path, actually. So this is uh, the last couple of paragraphs here uh, going on. This is one instance of how Prajan Sao taught his pupils, teaching just a little at a time, giving only the very heart of the practice, almost as if he would say, do this and this and this, with no explanations at all. Sometimes I would wonder about his way of teaching, that is, I would compare it with books I had read or with the Dharma talks I had heard given by other teachers. For example, Prajan Singh, one of his students, wrote a small handbook <clears throat> for the practice of meditation entitled Taking the Triple Refuge, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, and the Techniques of Meditation. And in it he said that in practicing meditation you must, before all else, sit with your body straight and establish mindfulness directly in front of you. That's how he put it, but not how a John Sao would put it. Still, the principles they taught were one and the same, the only difference being that a John Sao was not a preacher and so didn't make use of a lot of rhetoric or explanation. As he explained to me, a John Sao, when we make up our mind to repeat Buddha, the act of making up the mind is in itself the act of establishing mindfulness. When we keep thinking Buddha, which is repeating it in mind, like a mantra, almost, like a single word mantra almost. When we keep thinking Buddha and are not willing to let the mind slip away from Buddha, our mindfulness and alertness are already healthy and strong, always watching over the mind to keep it with Buddha. As soon as our attention slips away so that we forget to think Buddha and go thinking of something else, it's a sign that there's a lapse in our mindfulness. But if we can keep our mindfulness under control or return to and can think Buddha, Buddha, continuously, with no gaps, our mindfulness is already strong, so there's no need to go, quote, establishing mindfulness anywhere. To think of an object, 
so that it is coupled with the mind is, in and of itself, the act of getting mindfulness established. That was how he explained it to me. <clears throat> this was one instance of how I saw and heard Prajan Sao teaching meditation and should be enough to serve us all as food for thought. So, <laughs> after 1500 or 2500 years, <laughs> we see a, a great teacher basically taking it way down to um, path-centered teaching, centered uh, with the original instructions of Gautama, not too complicated explanations, very simple, because the work is not listening to explanation. <laughs> the work of transformation is done basically by uh, the pranic flow that transforms the seven chakra system, including so-called mind, by prolonged sitting and meditation um, without attachment, meaning uh, mindfulness, non-grasping non or attentiveness, manasikara, attentive watching mindfulness, right? Establishing mindfulness. That's the great, great gift of Gautama, <clears throat> is teaching the practice of mindfulness, sati. And that's all that's needed. And John Lee, his student down the line, who's a beautiful guy, basically was saying that, you know, there, there's no hard line between shamatha vipassana, between the practice of concentration and the practice that leads to insight. Um, taking concentration far enough without attachment, as you can see here, <clears throat> because the practice that goes after buddho is simply anapanasati. The, the buddho, I never did buddho practice myself. Um, I started with anapanasati. But <clears throat> John Sao is basically saying, uh, after you got buddho in mind, <clears throat> then follow the breath. <laughs> um, after you repeat it, uh, uh, he said, uh, you can stop repeating Buddha <laughs> uh, and follow the breath. <clears throat> and that's the, the reality is that Anapanasati is harder than, than doing Buddha. But after Buddha comes <laughs> following the breath. Uh, <clears throat> and so after the mind is clear and bright, meaning one establishes mindfulness and samadhi. Uh, go back to the breath. And that going back to the breath is associated with making the mind know inside or turning the light within or um, watching without the mind going out to uh, paranormal vision. Uh, but again, sitting empty and still, um, even when breath and body seem to fall away, is not the end of the line. And so, uh, it's this kind of work that leads to Sotapanna. And uh, a person who's done this kind of work, uh, for this person, Sotapanna will come naturally. Actually, I, think, I believe Ajahn Chah said something like, um, nobody should stay, nobody, that, that <laughs> uh, anybody who stays in his temple for a year and does hardcore practice should be Sotapanna in a year. Something like that. I believe, a John Cha said. And so, <clears throat> it really is a piece of work. And the great piece of work is getting one's life in order, getting one's psychology in order, 
getting one's uh, mind in order so that one can go into deep concentration, so that one can get to stillness, so that one can um, watch the movement out of stillness or the establishing of taking up objects, <laughs> uh, how the mind moves away from stillness uh, and the, the true nature of mind and the process of uh, entanglement or uh, the creation of samsara. So, uh, <clears throat> this pith um, presentation of a John Sow's very bare-bones direct teaching method working with a senior student uh, should give you the sense of what the path to Sotapanna is all about. It's a lot more than study and whatever your fine blend of Madhyamaka and Manamudra may be, <laughs> this kind of clarity of mind is necessary for Sotapanna Maga and Sotapanna Pala, the fruit. Um, so, um, I hope this was useful. <laughs> uh, it was certainly useful for me to read these 23 classes or do these 23 sessions of Views Action Path. And, you know, I want to thank you for being here. For anybody who's been with this for 23 classes, it's great. Um, you deserve some credit of um, commitment to learning, and I'm glad you're here, and I hope it was real helpful. Uh, and we can see how um, the Buddhist path is, is gradual. Uh, awakening is instantaneous. <laughs> but learning the path takes time. And moving out of distress, just so that we can meditate deeply, takes time. And developing skill in meditation is a big piece of work. And so... Uh, we take up as much as we wish, um, but nobody should underestimate the path and the goal. And modern presentations really do undervalue and um, underestimate the um, difficulty of the path and the difficulty of mind training, the, na the, the level of effort needed for complete and perfect awakening, even for Sotapanna, actually. Um, serious effort is needed. And there are lots of people who feel happy with their reformulations. That's great. Um, but don't fool yourself, or <laughs> it doesn't matter. You can go ahead and fool yourself. But the people who are unfooled will see you're fooling yourself and um, uh, wish you well. And so... Um, I don't know. I mean, this is this is these are the sources that I trust as I presented in the last twenty three weeks, and um, I hope it's been good for you. It's been good for me, and I want to thank all the great teachers um, the last twenty five hundred years, and particularly those that um, we work with in the series. So, thanks again. Take good care of yourselves. See you next time in another reading in another working and good night